Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, December 9th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. And executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. So, you know, you guys, you notice I always mix up the order in which I introduce you. And I'm, I'm wondering, is that, is that a, is that a violation of conservative precepts that uh, I don't, I don't provide a, a, a standard rhythm? You know, it's like Rich Lowry always says, Oh, here's the sage of authenticity, Woods, Jim Garrity. And here's the notorious MBD, Michael Brendan Doherty. It's always in the same form. What do you guys think? Am I, am I is it anxiety provoking? Because you 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 guys look a little anxious while we're doing it because you never know where I'm going. And maybe you should adopt Rich's cadence when he does the you know the MBD thing. Well, it's, yeah, like, it's, has, yeah, it's real like a there's the there's a, like a drama there. It's yeah, the yeah. Well, I mean they that that is that is in, you know that is intensely scripted. Like he says the same thing at the beginning, he says the same thing at the end. He adopts the same cadence. I find it comforting and weird. It's just not my. I'm more. I'm more of an improv guy. You know, I did, did improv. I took improv. I, you know, uh, so I don't know. I, I'm just asking. What What do you think? Am I making you? Is Is this discomforting? No, yes, no, <laughs> no. I think it's um, it's a it's you're, it's a small strike against uh, you know like the uh, the forces of regulation and bureaucracy. You're not adhering to, to pointless rules. You yes, know? but then it, what does that make us? Because we always answer in the same way. So we're the slaves to the rules, right? We always say, hi, John. So you're saying <laughs> that I am, I am the norm violator. I am the norm. Right. I am the one who is threatening the constitutional order here. <laughs> and you guys are like anonymous, right? You're, you're trying to work within the system to, to, to leaven and, you know, and help, me you know make sure that the place runs smoothly while i'm trying to tear it down right yes i'm so you're miles taylor and i'm i'm trump is that it okay okay why not why not so speaking of norm violations so guess what norm didn't get violated the supreme court of course yesterday uh, in a in a one sentence unanimous ruling, did not grant cert or or whatever it was being asked to grant injunctive relief, cert this that the other thing to this effort to uh, change the outcome in in some fashion or other in uh, Pennsylvania, and thus has effectively brought to an end the Trump uh, any idea that the Supreme Court was going to intervene in overturning the results of the election, which was psychotically science fictional but it wasn't just donald trump himself who was indulging in this fantasy of course uh and and it was the entire liberal establishment which has been threatening since trump began appointing supreme court justices and of course appointed three uh in the course of his of his term that the purpose of this was self-interested, that he was trying to create not an ideological block to help conservatism, but a personal lawyer block to help him with whatever evil fascistic schemes that he had in mind. And if, in fact, Trump had that illusion, it has been stripped from him very cruelly 
by what happened yesterday. Uh, and uh, no, we were talking just before about various other, you know, all we hear about is that Trump is a unique threat to our democracy and our institutions. And um, I saw Corey Shackey, who works at AEI, say that she supported the Jim Mattis uh, waiver for Secretary of Defense because Trump was a unique threat to our democracy back in 2016, you know, the, during the transition. And we needed somebody... I guess she's implicitly saying who you know wouldn't who wouldn't participate in a coup uh, on Trump's behalf, and so she supported the waiver. But since we have no, there is no such threat uh, from emanating from Biden, she does not support the waiver in the case of General Austin, who needs a waiver since he is only four years retired uh, from active duty in the military to become Biden's Secretary of Defense. So this is where we are, like. Trump, you had to appoint people who were going to prevent Trump from 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 using the military to, you know, I don't know, roll tanks on the Capitol or something. Uh, so that threat is over. Trump did, remember? He did roll tanks on the Capitol. Yeah, some of us oh. were stuck in the traffic jam when those tanks were rolling into town for that 4th of July. Yes. <laughs> oh, oh, you mean... You mean <laughs> that was the, a fascistic yeah. threat. What Donald Trump does, it's not that his detractors are crazy. Because they're only listening to what the president says. He broadcasts every single thing he wants to do, and quite a bit of it is untoward. Um, he apparently we learned we were having this argument briefly beforehand whether or not this was a very serious threat. But apparently, according to the documents that we saw, um, he really did want to fire Robert Mueller during the Robert Mueller investigation. Um, directed his subordinates to do something along those lines, and they simply ignored him. Um, and he was broadcasting that's what he wanted to do, and this would have been a very serious threat in the event that it materialized. But the people who were saying it's not going to materialize were the people who were ultimately correct, and they never get any credit for it. Similarly, there was an Atlantic article um, that made a lot of waves before the election, Barton Gelman, who printed based on the sources he spoke with within the Republican legal community, that Donald Trump's plan in the event of a close election that he lost was to agitate and lobby and try to convince uh, these states that were in dispute, like Pennsylvania, to appoint a state of a slate of legislators, electors rather, that would vote for him regardless of the outcome of the vote at the state level. Now, people like us said that was crazy, not because they wouldn't try to do it. They did. They broadcast they wanted to do it. This is what they tried to do. They're trying to do it now. But it would rest on the spurious legal arguments that they would ultimately make and made in this case. And even if it was a closer election, those same meritless legal arguments would be before the courts. Uh, So the people who were saying that this wasn't going to happen were relying on the durability of institutions and the predictability of institutions, tested institutions like the courts. Um, Not the, the... sobriety of the Republicans around Donald Trump or Donald Trump's own, uh, you know, capacity to delay gratification here. Um, That's never something you could trust. You could trust these institutions. And even today, there is no, there is no faith in these tried and tested institutions to perform in the predictable ways they have performed in over a century. Even the lessons that we've learned over the last four years are dismissed uh, offhand Mostly, in fact, my uh, my contention is because they prefer the anxiety. 
Well, there's there's actually it's interesting because they haven't really stopped either. There's a there's a new article in the Atlantic uh, from yesterday or today about how well I know we've been saying coup, but we have to talk about how he's staging a coup because talking about it prevents the coup from happening. But maybe we don't mean coup because like the Inuit word for snow, there are many different ways. I mean, it's like this it's this extremely energetic attempt to talk talk themselves into that anxiety that you discussed, Noah. And I think that in, in one sense, look, saying that the institutions held is something we should all be proud of because it shows the durability of them, which is not to say that all the ways in which Trump has stress tested those institutions is, is something we should uh, embrace. It's terrible. I mean, we've all we've spent four years talking about the ways in which he has violated norms and undermined uh, faith in these institutions. So that's all bad. But I agree that this this effort to continue the kind of high anxiety at a time when we have real world practical challenges to be dealing with is self and it's becoming self indulgent on certainly on the part of the mainstream media. That's a very interesting point. Briefly, the uh, the what the the left and the progressives and just even you know it's the liberals, conventional liberals are doing is borrowing language from Turkey in precisely the same way that Donald Trump supporters borrowed language from Turkey to describe the deep state. There really is a deep state in Turkey, um, which consists of uh, career officials, bureaucratic officials, military officials that that survives transitions there was, regime after regime. There and, was a deep state. There it might have been dismantled. It was, yeah, I mean, like Erdogan... Yeah, Erdogan has has dismantled the deep state. And the other th- reason that the Zineb Terfeki piece about how people from countries where there are coups recognize this as a coup is that Turkey was a military dictatorship. Right. I mean, I mean, Ataturk was a was effectively a military dictator, uh, and there has been a sort of uneasy Turkey then transitioned to being a democracy. But it wasn't really a democracy because anytime anybody went too far, the military came in basically to moderate, you know, to to continue policies of extreme secularization and all of that and blah, blah, blah. And that so basically the whole point here is that military rule in Turkey was the rule, not the, that was the norm. That was the constitutional norm, not the other way around. Whereas our norm is we don't have that. And so the idea that you can then say, look, I know what, what coups are. I've lived through them. I mean, there are various different kinds of coups. There's the envelope coup and there's the manila envelope coup and the letter coup and the this and the that. And we have never had a coup. We don't, is, need, is these, we don't these... need many terms for snow when you've never had snow. And there cannot be a coup in the United States as it happens. I, I, I mean, I think genuinely, honestly, and truly, first of all, a coup often throws out the president. It's not that the president then uses the military to do what exactly? Suspend the legislature? What's he gonna? What they're gonna do? They're gonna surround the Congress and like imprison everybody. I mean, what do you do in the states? What happens then? It makes no logical or logistical sense to worry that Trump is going to cause a coup. He was the legitimately elected president of the United States with extraordinary powers that were also limited. And what's more, those limits held. They held constantly, and they're holding now. The thing that is so amazing to me is that if we have ever had a a legitimization in terms of liberals, Democrats, and otherwise of the federal system of government in the United States, according to which there is no centralized election system. 
there is no centralized system of anything, including laws. Um, you know, basically, uh, Trump had a challenge if he wanted to overturn the results of a legitimate election. He had an insuperable challenge. <clears throat> I mean, you take Pennsylvania as the best example. <clears throat> so he's fighting and fighting and fighting to get Governor Kemp in Georgia to call the legislators in for a special session and have the Republicans somehow choose us as another slate of electors that are friendly to him. Well, first of all, go right ahead with this idiocy and nonsense, since it won't, in fact, affect the results of the election. It's 16 electoral votes. Biden won by, you know, I don't know, uh, 80. So this is all not, this is all narish kite. It's ridiculous. Go ahead, fight and fight and fight over it. For what purpose? So you can say that you got that that Biden got fewer electoral votes than you did in winning. I mean, it's ridiculous, and Kemp's not going to do it anyway. But any version of this that he wanted to affect in Pennsylvania couldn't be affected because there's a Democratic governor. Democratic governor is not going to call in the legislature to 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 create a rival slate of electors when. Trump lost the state by 85,000 votes anyway. This is, this is, so what we have here is everyone's like, oh, it's so terrible and we need popular, uh, the states, it's, the states are stupid. I mean, I've been, from the time I was growing up in the 1970s, I remember having a social studies teacher, a very left-wing social studies teacher, who wanted the abolition of the states. Wait, Why didn't we have states? So, but that, that is, to me, is the joke of the whole thing, because, um, for all the, those complaining about Trump being a threat to uh, the, our democracy and being a, and um, uh, to the Constitution, um, these are forces and people who, um, given different circumstances, are fine with threats to our democracy and our Constitution. It just depends on the policy aims. If you want to abolish states, sure. If you want to get rid of the Second Amendment, uh, sure. If you you know you want to pack the courts, sure. You know that it has nothing to do with their um, enduring sense of the sanctity of of the American system at all. It's about the policy aims. Well, that's why sides. I think the the fact that this Supreme Court decision was a single sentence and unanimous was a rebuke, not just to Trump, but to the the people on the left who said they need to pack the courts. It was a rebuke to both both of them, and a, and a, a sterling example of how our system is supposed to work. Right. Well, a lot of this has always been projection. Right. It's always been you know what I mean. That's what, what we would do. That's what we would do. Right. In right. this position, we would certainly appoint judges who would who would uh, you know see the law as an instrument. Uh, towards our political ends, so why wouldn't they? Right. Well, I mean, you know, as we as we go through this process, what what Trump has done that is dangerous, aside from you know showing the we. In other words, if if there if he he hasn't thrown our institutions in, into crisis, he has revealed the hollowness of them, and that's bad too because you know it would be better if the, the their hollowness were not so easily revealed um i guess uh but um he couldn't have gotten elected if the institutions were stronger like the political parties right he couldn't and he couldn't work as, and even so as a to, as the most outsider president in american political history with no loyalty or fealty to anyone but himself none so that what he wanted to do was turn things around and make his party loyal to him 
through all kinds of things, both, you know, uh, winning things and also intimidating people who might disagree with him and all of that. Through all of this, he didn't fire Mueller. I mean, that that's the key thing with this whole, oh my God, we could have had a crisis. He wanted to fire Mueller, but he didn't. I don't think he wanted to fire Mueller. I mean, the reason we think he wanted to fire Mueller is there were leaks he wanted to fire Mueller. Uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel, told Mueller's committee that Trump at one point or other said, you have to you go fire Mueller, and he didn't do it. Trump can fire Mueller at any second of the day. All he has to do is write a tweet that says, Robert Mueller has been released. You know, Robert Mueller is fired. He doesn't need Don McGahn. He doesn't need anybody. He did it, you know, he fired Jim Mattis that way, as I recall. I mean, you know, he, or, you know, or or pretended to or whatever. He has a, he has a direct connection to the American people and to the political, outside the political system to do whatever it is that he wants to do. And there were norms that he did not want to violate. And what's more, his own animal cunning was right because uh, it was, it would have been a much worse for him had he fired Mueller than had he let this process go forward, the report be written, and there being no impeachment of him on the basis of Mueller. Whatever Andrew Weissman and all these goons want to say, uh, Mueller did not produce an art, did not produce a bill of impeachment uh, against Trump. That had to wait for the other Narishkeit, this notion that he should, you know, that he should lose his office because he uh, attempted uh, incompetently to get a foreign country to do something that was politically advantageous to him. Uh, and, you know, I don't think that really helped them and it didn't, it didn't, it, it didn't help him either, but it didn't really hurt him, hurt him that much. So the third impeachment in American political history was wildly ineffective. Um, so, you know, he didn't violate norms that much. What I think he has done is unleash dangerous animal spit that's the moment that we're in now um and uh, eric erickson said this very well in a in an email yesterday which is you know when you walk around saying what he's saying that the election was rigged it was stolen everything is terrible your will was violated what you wanted to do was violated um the notion that some some psychopath isn't going to go to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, and start uh, you know shooting Democratic legislators that 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 could really happen. I know that it's happened. It happened to Republicans in 2017 at the softball game. So you know that these animal passions can be unleashed, um, and he but, is doing it in a very systematic fashion. That is dangerous and it's awful and it's extra legal, and he should be ashamed of himself. And it's disgusting, but it's not a constitutional crisis. But also, e- even if it doesn't result in, um, uh, you know, a psychopath picking up a weapon, um, it is inspiring bad citizenship. Um, you know, uh, it doesn't right. have to end in, in homicide. Um, yeah. it, it's, it's a general loss of faith um, in the, the ways of the country and, and in our institutions. And, that's, and that is a terrible, terrible thing. It's not the same thing as a constitutional crisis. Well, and that's but it why it's different from the, you know, not my president protests. I mean, there's something qualitatively different about the Arizona Republican Party suggesting that you should fight and die in defense of a lost election. I mean, very plainly, will you take up arms in defense of the, the, uh, the assault on your rights, uh, this GOP that is led by a lunatic, Kelly Lord, who's a psychopath? 
and you know the, the 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 atrophying of the Republican Party in the Sun Belt really is following the trajectory in which the the Virginia GOP just imploded in on itself, where you have these these real recalcitrant um, activist types banging on drums that they really shouldn't be, and steadily losing political power as a result. I mean, that's the sort of thing that like they the people who who are deathly afraid of this sort of thing, which is not to say they shouldn't be, but don't discount they or, or do discount the extent to which the public doesn't reward this kind of behavior, just the opposite. I mean, I, you know, uh, this whole notion that he's a unique threat to everything. The le- my other favorite thing lately is this uh, stuff that's being uh, peddled that uh, on on inauguration day or on inauguration weekend, he will try to steal Biden's thunder by flying off on his plane and going to a rally and announcing his candidacy in 2024. Uh, well, so this is interesting because, A, uh, he doesn't have an unlimited right to fly off on Air Force One. That is a courtesy that is extended to him. Uh, you know, he doesn't own the plane. Um, he doesn't have total, you know, and so, and it's not Air Force One once Biden is sworn in, by the way. Um, Air Force One is the designation for the plane on which the president rides. It would no longer be Air Force One. It's just a plane. Um, but uh, as I recall, uh, on Inauguration Weekend 2017, um, the entire American left went out into the streets to have a demonstration against Trump called the Women's March. Uh, three and a half million people across the country were in the streets pro- effectively protesting against and, and don't, don't forget the many Democratic political, elected political figures who, who publicly announced they were not attending the inauguration in protest, right, right? because he was yeah. illegitimate. Right. So, I mean, you know, everybody, these norm, you know, we, we live in a time when norm violations are bipartisan. They happen all the time. Uh, they're, they're gross and they're terrible. And Trump is worse because he's president and therefore has a much larger role in crashing these things and is having a terrible effect on the Republican Party as we speak, splitting it, um, you know, uh, 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 empowering the most irresponsible and craziest elements of it because they are more consonant with what it is that he wants to do politically. Uh, but this is the time that we live in. Yeah, we, we just had a serious, you know, Biden had to sp- spend two weeks. We talked about it. Everybody talked about it. Uh, trying not to say that he wasn't going to pack the courts. I mean, that was a real serious, and, and, and that they were going to grow, you know, because it was unfair that, 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 uh, that the Senate uh, is constituted the way the Senate is. Democrats were going to grow uh, the number of states by two in order to get themselves four more senators. I mean, that's a norm that that is that would be the largest norm violation in American history. Uh, you know, in the late fifties, when we added the last two states, it was very clear that we were adding one state that was going to be Republican and one state that was going to be Democratic if we were going to do it at all, which is exactly what happened. The oddity, the, I mean, that's the why oddity is that Hawaii was a Republican state and Alaska was the Democratic state, and now it's all it's all reversed itself, which is another thing about American politics and how nothing is ever static. And that's why it's all projection, and that they recognize themselves in Donald Trump because the arguments they made in that favor were not about 
the uh, enfranchisement of these, you know, the citizens of Puerto Rico or the taxation policies in Washington, D.C., or even FDR's argument in favor of expanding the courts, which is that they're all just really overworked by me. I've overworked them and they need more. And they're all old. We need like an age limit. None None of these arguments were proffered. It was only revenge. They, they made it explicit. This right. was this was an effort to dilute the political authority of Republicans that is ill-begotten. Interesting stat, by the way, which is a, di- a digression. Uh, you know, Democrats are always talking about how frustrating it is that landmass is represented in the form of the Electoral College or the Senate, that landmass doesn't vote, right? How much land in, in actual geographic space does the House Democratic majority occupy, according to Dave Wasserman? Is it 7%? 16% of the country. It's the yeah. smallest House majority in geographic terms in the country's history. Yeah, I mean, so, right. So landmass shouldn't represent anything, and yet it does. And you know why it does? Because that's what the Constitution says. There was a reason that there all of this... Go. You could read the debates on the Articles of Confederation and on the passage of the Constitution... <clears throat> All of this was considered. It was all considered when the amendment was passed to make the Senate um, uh, directly elected. This is all considered. And the joke of all this is that all this happened and we have to do this and we have to do that and we have to do the other thing. And Republicans have a structural advantage in this and that and the other thing. And the last I saw when I was growing up... <laughs> The House had been in Democratic hands and uninterrupted Democratic hands for 40 years until 1994. So, gee, how exactly was it that Republicans have some bizarre built-in political advantage? In fact, the only time in our history that we see a party with built-in practical political advantages was the Democratic Party's control of the House for four decades, un- 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 uninterrupted Four decades, and there was, and I think it was twenty six years or twenty eight years uninterrupted in the Senate, from fifty two to seventy, I believe, or fifty four to so twenty six years, fifty four to seventy, something like that, fifty four to eighty, excuse me. So um, things change, and you know, uh, just because everybody is an idiot and doesn't remember anything or know anything about American history. This notion that you can then turn around and make these arguments about how, you know, one party has an unfair advantage. That's how Trump gets to the unfair. You know, everybody can play that game. But it's almost worse than that they don't know the history, because I was remembering that in I think it was in right after the inauguration. It was in 2017. Do you remember the absolutely ridiculous, very public celebrity readings of the words that made America? You know, they did this whole thing where they would all they would, you know, celebrities would read the Declaration of Independence and read the Constitution. It was this very performative act of we care about this document and we are the only thing standing between its destruction and Donald Trump. And it was so pretentious and obnoxious. And of course the liberal media and the left just ate it up. Um, They didn't obviously read it very well because they spent the next few years arguing that, you know, he was decimating it. And I do believe he was challenging, you know, like I said, it was a stress test, but are we going to see that again? Are we going to see these portentous readings of the, of the, the founding documents? They actually use the history as a kind of propagandistic tool for their own 
pursuit of power. And, you know, the right has its version of that, too. But it's it just it fascinates me. And it'll be really interesting. We talk a lot about uh, what will we do when the same thing that happened under Trump happens under Biden? How will what will the response be? And we're already seeing that it will be completely hypocritical and very few people are willing to say that. Okay, we will go, we will get to that in a minute. First, I want to talk to you about today's sponsor, the Bonson Group. As I've been telling you, look, Bonson provides professional financial and investment advice in a field in which that advice is often awful with financial advisors who are lazy and disengaged and uninterested in the real work that goes into stewarding, husbanding, and growing a client's assets. Uh, get not It's not just that investment advisors don't, don't work very hard, which I gather they really don't. It's that if you get into the important stuff that you need from an investment advisor, right, their understanding of how markets work, intersection of public policy and investing, the relevance of monetary policy and the Fed, you might as well be talking to a teenage kid at a coffee shop than talking to somebody whom you are entrusting with your dollars and your retirement money and whatever else you have. The work ethic and intellectual capacity of so many financial professionals leaves a lot to be desired. That is not the case for the Bonson Group, a bi-coastal wealth management firm with over $2.5 billion in assets under management. Every single day there is an intellectual journey. Client communications are a way of life with the Bonson Group, and every bit of its perspective on the economy and capital markets is their own fresh resource and opinion. Every client given his own bespoke family office experience. Read the Bonson Group's weekly investment commentary at DividendCafe.com. Read the Bonson Group's daily market updates at TheDCToday.com. Check out the Bonson Group for a refreshing antidote to the laziness and intellectual spaghetti that is today's investment advice industry. That's the Bonson Group, B-A-H-N-S-E-N, the Bonson Group, where an actual economic worldview sits on the foundation of the best investment advice in the industry. Check out DividendCafe.com, thedctoday.com, and get to know the Bonson Group today for your wealth management needs. So, Christine, uh, let's get into this uh, question of not only hypocrisy, but what what else um what else there might be well it's it's like groundhog day the movie um because we woke up to news that there's a new autonomous zone in portland the red house autonomous zone which was uh, a bunch of antifa types set up to protect evidently to protect some people who were illegally squatting in a house in north portland but along a busy street uh the police came to break to break it up and and uh, clean it up, and they were actually rebuffed. There were enough uh, uh, squatters there and, and protesters there that they pushed the police back. For now, some arrests were made, but this is you know this harks back to the summer of love, as it was called, where different autonomous zones were set up. Um, we've also seen a lot of hand wringing over uh, protesters against restrictions and protesters against re- uh, lockdowns. Um, in the media, which is a sudden uh, interest in protest tactics that was completely absent during the summer when Black Lives Matter protesters, for example, blocked the door and camped out on the on the lawn of the attorney general of Louisville, Kentucky, for example, or here in D.C. were constantly showing up. You know, they built a guillotine in front of Jeff Bezos's house. They were protesting the mayor's house. These were tactics that have been used by left wing protesters for months and were barely mentioned. Um 
And now suddenly there, there are problems. So we're seeing it certainly in the media. We're seeing the narrative suddenly pay attention to things because the, uh, the D and the R have switched in, in terms of who won the election. Uh, but I'll be, I'm actually watching the autonomous zone stuff carefully because I mean, I think this is the kind of thing that Biden and Harris are going to have to comment on. Perhaps they avoided it during the election, but it's their problem as of January. Uh, yeah, so you know, let's talk a little about this. Th- these uh, these demonstrations, the lock, the the uh, anti lockdown demonstrations, um, all of which are, you know, uh, I find it very hard not to have immense sympathy for these small businessmen and and others who are saying you are destroying our livelihoods on the basis of um, uh, policies or ideas that are being um, unequally uh, or or uh, unsystematically enforced. Um, that seem to sort of be uniquely hostile to uh, dining institutions and churches, for example, and and weirdly uh, sanguine about uh, big box stores and and uh, and other things, including you know uh, nail salon should be closed, but uh, bowling alley shouldn't, or whatever. You know this this weird thing that is going on that is driving everybody crazy, and yet we then have in Idaho and in Los Angeles, as, as, as you mentioned, these, these uh, incidents where uh, anti-mask protesters or anti-lockdown protesters are going to the homes of public officials and having demonstrations on their lawns, outside their houses, and all of this, and this is just awful, and I can tell you, uh, I have family experience of this. So uh, my, my, my brother-in-law is Elliot Abrams, who is uh, currently the coordinator uh, for uh, the administration's response on Venezuela and Iran, but in the 1980s was an assistant secretary of state for Latin American affairs. And in that position became a highly controversial figure with the very far left that was not only opposed to Reagan administration policy in Central America, but openly advocate, open advocates of the Stalinist regime in Nicaragua, for example. And one day, a, a coalition of these groups decided that they were going to stage a protest on the lawn of the Abrams home. That is my sister, Rachel, and uh, and her uh, then uh, three very small kids. She had a six-year-old, a five-year-old, and a three-and-a-half-year-old. And they sat in their house while on the sidewalk, right outside their windows, with my with my nieces with my niece and nephews looking through the windows with people shouting murderer killer you're a monster you should go to jail you know banging drum banging pots doing this doing that um it was terrifying it terrified them uh it enraged it was also sort of enraging it was this a suburban neighborhood chevy chase dc um on on 31st street and and the whole point of this is to make life as unpleasant as possible for people who are public officials who are simply trying to work through the policies that they that elected you know in Elliot's case he was working for the for the Reagan administration which had a policy that he was affecting he wasn't necessarily its creator he wasn't its progenitor whatever and and yet you know it was deemed by this far left you know by by these by these marxists uh, that it all was fair game and that he deserved, you know, he deserved everything, uh, including, you know, the, 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 the scouring of his own home and the terror and the frightening of his own children because of policies that they, 
did not like. So this was an extreme thing to do in the 1980s, and it is now becoming an entirely common thing to do as, as, we, as we begin the third decade of the 20th century and talk about norm violations and an end of, you know, any kind of remote civic concord or peace or, or, or an understanding that, you know, public, public officials and public servants, just because you disagree with them, that doesn't mean that they're not working for you. They're working for you. So that's my, that's my, my story there. The the Trump officials who live in DC have been constantly targeted, particularly in the last uh, year by uh, Black Lives Matter protesters, anti-Trump protesters, you know, the post, the postmaster general's home, there there were these constant protests every Saturday, you know, Saturday morning, all these people gathering, banging pots, making a racket, trying to get, they couldn't get into the building, obviously, but this is common in DC now through, through the Trump administration. And, and, it started very on much smaller scale. Remember, Sarah Sanders was asked to leave a restaurant. People are, you know, reported officials reported being kind of called out in public, but it has certainly escalated to uh, the extent that it's now. It's but it's always been a common tactic of radicals, right? Whether on the right or the left, as you point out, John. But it's it's it. I I'm really annoyed by how how much attention it's getting when the people banging the pots and yelling and occupying people's front stoops are considered right wing. It's terrible. And it was completely ignored all summer. There are officials all over this country who experienced this on a nightly basis. And ha- and there was there was no recourse. They just had to endure it. Right. Because it was left wing protesters. So it's hypocrisy. We're, we're witnessing this uh, large scale cross pollinization among uh, protest groups and fringe groups um, with um, different different members and different groups among them sort of taking playbooks from the, from each other, um, from one another, um, sort of, you know, organically. So, you know, the, um, so the, as we, you were just saying, the, the anti-lockdown protests are going to people's lawns as the, as, uh, you know, Antifa groups had been doing and Black Lives Matter groups had been doing over the summer. Um, the, the, uh, Staten Island bar owner, who was uh, protesting uh, lockdowns declared uh, an, an, or attempted to declare an autonomous zone, um, uh, taking a page from uh, you know the Pacific Northwest Northwest Antifa groups, um, the whacked out sovereign citizens movement. Uh, one at least one branch of it um, in Seattle is taking a page from Black Lives Matter um, and. Um, um, uh, knocked on uh, the the doors in white suburban neighborhood neighborhoods, um, declaring the you know the homes um, people's homes uh, in the name of uh, 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 black citizens. Um, so it's all very disturbing to me. Uh, not just because it's simply disturbing on its face, but because it speaks to this deeper issue that doesn't have to do um, with ideology per se. It's becoming this sort of general stew of um uh it's about the destruction and it's about the tearing down and the delegitimizing um of our system in every case uh it 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 doesn't matter you the 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 cause is the pretense the 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 aim is um is the measure you take and it's and and everyone is taking um everyone else's um extreme tactics and using them that's an important point. I mean, I, I, you know, there's no, there's no uh, comfort in the fact, I mean, some of this is really 
uh, we were saying this in the summer that um, uh, people are also underoccupied this year. They don't have anywhere to go. Yep. They don't have anything to do. A lot of them have lost their jobs. And so they are kind of like these, these extras in some kind of a political epic uh, that they are, that they are, you know, uh, they're like in Cecil B. DeMille's extras, you know, at the, you know, at the foot of Mount Sinai with the golden calf or something. They've got nothing else to do, so they're wandering around, um, uh, serving as the as the background material. Yeah, and you know, um, it, 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 yeah, it leads me to believe also that um, if you think um, things were dicey uh, after Trump lost and uh, didn't accept the results. Um, imagine what would have happened had he won uh, in this country, right? Given that everyone—that's why my city was boarded or, up. Yep, it wasn't, that's right. It wasn't. Everyone's <laughs> tactics are everyone else's. Everyone's conspiracies yeah. are everyone else's. Right. And, right. You know. right. What if he had? What if he had? What if he had won uh, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and there's one other set, Wisconsin, by five thousand votes in each case? Yep. What what would have happened then? Um, you think uh, calls for faithless electors? I mean, literally in 2016, there was an effort to get people to serve as faithless electors to literally change their votes in the Electoral College to grant Hillary Clinton the victory. Now, there's a was a nominal argument in that case that would be different from this argument, which is that uh, she won the popular vote. The Electoral College is an illegitimate way to decide, according to these 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 theories, uh, to to decide um, if there is going to be a systematic world in which uh, people who don't win the popular vote uh, but nonetheless prevail in the Electoral College. It had only happened a couple of times or once, maybe once or twice in American history before Trump in 2016. And therefore, it was like, well, this is not what we went for, so you should change your vote. Um, but nonetheless, that, that wasn't a violation of norms. And two people did, I believe, or two people did at the time vote to, 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 um, switch their votes so that his total on electoral college day was 304 instead of 306. And I think they were restored through legal action, uh, to the, to the 306 number. But I mean, this is not to do whataboutism or, you know, you, it's just that, this notion that there is something unique about uh, the radicalization of the right and the radicalization of of of, tr- of the Trump response and all of this—it's not. This is a this is an American disease that we are facing. This is an American civic uh, collapse, slow motion collapse that we're going through. Um, and and the notion that uh, you're going to look at a presidency that you didn't vote for or that you know prevailed narrowly over your or po- party and then decide that it it it's illegitimate is really bad. But I do want to do somewhat about ism in this sense, which is that we had this whole thing. Trump is a president. He doesn't respect our institutions. He doesn't, and he wants this, and he won't do that. And is a constitutional crisis. It was Barack Obama who said. We can't wait. I have a phone and a pen, and I'm going to do what I can absent because uh, the Republican Congress is so recalcitrant. The American people chose to have a presidency of one party and and a, at least a House of Representatives of the other party after Barack Obama and the Democrats worked their will in 2009 and 2010 and spent $2.5 trillion in 18 months. Um, and they decided that they were going to do what they could to put a check on that. When the President of the United States looks at that fact and says, 
I'm going to try to do stuff anyway because we can't wait. The American people were saying wait. American people were saying stop. And he was like, I'm not going to stop. Well, I don't know what to do with that when, 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 when you then have a, a president, when you would then follow that up with a president who, who basically takes that and goes further with it and, you know, puts in, a, puts in badly drafted executive orders about, you know, stopping uh, people at airports and, 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 and all of that stuff, you know, also does plays executive order games that are kind of pretty fast and loose. Um, you know what? What are what are we supposed to make of that? Uh, Obama was overturned by the courts over and over and over again on those efforts to legislate from the White House, and Trump just followed along. He he didn't innovate. Sitting here uh, reading Obama's memoir, and uh, you know uh, one of the interesting things about it is that it ends before it gets to this real question of how he was how he handles his. Sudden powerlessness, having you know had a had a, having had a total mandate handed to him and his party. Um, of course, I'm sure he will not take any blame, but but he deserves it. Uh, there were there were a few things though that which if if, if you want to be a, a little more uh, respectful of our institutions, if you're if you're Joe Biden who's about to uh, step into one, um, you know one of the big overreaches with with Title Nine the Dear Colleague letter that the Obama administration used to uh, basically eliminate due process on campus, to correct that, instead of, you know, writing his own executive order, he had the rule, Trump administration officials, namely Betsy DeVos at the Department of Education, went through the rulemaking process. She followed the rules. She said she, she put it out there. You know, they did draft rules. They had people come and do the public comments. It was debated. They did it the way they were supposed to. Joe Biden will go right back in there and write another executive order or a dear colleague letter is my prediction. I'll be interested to see if it's is easy for them to dismantle, though, because the rulemaking process in all of these agencies exists to to stop exactly the kind of overreach you were describing. So there there is actually a model for getting stuff done administratively that respects the rules. Um Obama blew a lot of that out of the water because it was very effective, immediate, and the media praised him for it. It was like, look at this bold, decisive leader stopping these backwards, you know, Republicans from ruining the country. Absolutely. All right. So uh, this is a this is a short show, but I think we have uh, we have exhausted our topic material for today. So we will let you we will let you go and enjoy the rest of your the rest of your uh, your time uh, for. Uh, Noah, Abe, and Christine, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>